Welcome to the We Are Calvary podcast, where our mission is to share Jesus and help people experience life change. Thank you so much for listening. Here's this week's message. Well, good morning, church family. Why don't you go ahead and if you are able, would you please stand to your feet today? You have your Bibles with you. You can open up to the Gospel of Matthew. We're gonna be in chapter six this morning. And if you are a guest with us, These are the moments in our services where we come around the scriptures. We believe here at Calvary that the Bible is the inspired word of God. We believe it is relevant for us today. So we take these moments each and every week to come around the scriptures, to learn more about who God is and who Jesus is and how we call to respond with our lives to the saving message of Jesus Christ, to learn to walk with the spirit of God each and every day. And so with that said, let's look at these words from Jesus, beginning in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father. Grace us now in these moments to receive from you that which you would see fit for us. Even now, Lord, begin to calm our hearts, to still our minds. May this be a place of peace today. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated this morning. Well, if you have spent any time on Instagram, Facebook, or Pinterest, you have potentially seen the following image before. It reads, 99% of what you worry about will never happen. And while I'm quite certain that this statement should be read as hyperbole, you may be surprised to learn that the actual percentage number is not far off. Research was conducted at Cornell University, where a group of people were followed over an extended period of time, and what was discovered is that 85% of what these individuals worried about never, ever happened. Think about that. 85%. Like on a school grading scale, that's like a B. And I'll be honest with you, usually I'm pretty content with Bs. If I got a B in my, in my algebra class in high school, I would have been pumped and my mom would have surely put my report card on the refrigerator. <laughs> but for some reason, when it comes to the plausibility of things that I worry about, 
I feel a little bit different. I mean, let's face it. Until we can be sure that 100% of what we worry about will not happen, our tendency as human beings will be to succumb to worry and its perceived power over our thoughts, emotions, and even our actions. I mean, worry is so widespread in our society, it feels almost like to be human is to worry. And let's face it, it's easy to see why. There are so many things that we can worry about, endless opportunities. A quick Google search landed me the following. How about money and finances? Health and safety of loved ones? Job and career worries? Relationship problems? Anxiety and depression? Appearance and weight worries? World events and politics? Pandemic worries? Sleeping problems? Death and dying? And if that's not enough to stir up the anxiousness from within you, view at your own risk any of your favorite news sites, Just scroll through the headlines and you will find such articles like what I found last week entitled Nukes in Space. I mean, how do you not click on an article called Nukes in Space? If there's nukes in space, I need to know about these things. And so I click and I click. And these headlines are actually formulated, as we've talked about before, formulated in a way to stoke worry and cultivate fear within you, manipulating you to click and then to click and then to click some more. Each one of those clicks providing the algorithm all the data that it needs to continue to provide you with the same articles, the same types of articles to provoke this level of emotion. And these news sites, they will see an increase in ad revenue and you will see an increase in worry. See, to worry is to give way to anxiety and unease. To allow one's mind to to dwell on difficulty and trouble. And as we dwell, we enter into a cycle. Better yet, we enter into a spiral. We can call it the spiral of worry. See, what begins as an initial singular worry does not so easily stop there. As one writer says, the undirected mind tends towards chaos. See, we start the what-if game. Well, if this happens, then what if this happens? And then what of that? And if that happens, then what if this happens? And then this could happen. And we just keep going and going and going. And ultimately, it lands us in misery and despair. In fact, even last night, my wife beautifully illustrated this. We were laying in bed, getting ready to go to sleep. She is headed off on a a couple-day trip, and she's starting to think about being away from the family, being away from the kiddos. And she, she said last night, but what if I can't sleep while I'm down there? And, and what if I get sucked out of the airplane? It's like, okay, sweetheart, come on. Like, it happened one time, okay? Let's not worry about it. But see, eventually what happens is that singular worry has increased and multiplied, leaving us overwhelmed, distraught, and anxious, and even feeling hopeless. It truly is the spiral of misery and despair. And I hate it. And I know that you do as well. Because we all know the experience. The spiral is not commonplace for a few. It's really the story of the majority. So the question we might begin to ask is this. Is there a solution to worry? Is it possible to be human and to live with an ever-decreasing bent towards worry? According to Jesus, the answer is 
yes. We are currently in a teaching series entitled Living Out the Words of Jesus. And we have now reached the point in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus will say to those followers and those listeners on a hillside in Galilee and to us today, these simple yet profound words, do not worry. Now, before we examine this portion line by line, verse by verse, I want to make a statement. We often, and for good reason, know and refer to Jesus as Lord. We often say things like, Jesus is our savior. He is our good shepherd. He is the light of the world. Around Christmas time, it's routine to reference to Jesus as our joy, as our hope, as our peace. And these are all good and proper and correct distinctions of Christ. However, there is another distinction that I do not believe that we use often enough, and that is the distinction of Jesus as our teacher. See, Jesus was a brilliant teacher. Him being fully God while also being fully man, we call this the doctrine of the incarnation, gives him full authority to speak specifically to the human condition as one who embodied it and one who played part in creating it. So in light of Jesus being our great teacher, let's look at these next 10 verses through the lens of like a course outline or maybe a class syllabus. Here's how Jesus, our teacher, intends to instruct us about worry. Verse 25, a prohibition to not worry and a a statement of reality. Verse 26, it is an a fortiori argument, which basically means he's going to argue based upon if the lesser is true, then the greater is also true. Verse 28 through 30, uh, or sorry, verse 27, a second statement of reality. Verse 28 through 30, a second a fortiori argument. Verse 31, a second prohibition to not worry. Verse 32, a statement of compare and contrast. Verse 33, a single command and promise. And verse 34, a third prohibition not to worry and a third and final statement of reality. So with that said, let's begin. Verse 25, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body and what you will wear. Now, before we go into the first prohibition not to worry, we have to first go to the very beginning of this verse and to examine the first word that is used in the sentence, that being therefore. As has been said many times from this platform, context is key in understanding the Bible. And when we practice good Bible study, a word like therefore should always cause us to go back and see, as we have said, why it is therefore. So the reality is, verse 25 through 34 are a continuation of the teaching that Jesus just gave in verses 19 through 24. So as a reminder of what was talked about last week, Let's focus our attention on those verses for just a moment. Jesus talked about two treasures on earth and those in heaven. He talked about two conditions, light and darkness, and also two masters, God and money. So in our passage today, Jesus is assuming something about you and I. He is assuming that you and I will make the wise decision and store up our treasures in heaven, not on earth. That our eye, which is a metaphor for the heart or the human will, will be full of light and not darkness, and that we will choose to serve God rather than money. 
that in light of the alternatives that have been set out before us, he trusts that his followers will make the right choice, leading him to then say, therefore, do not worry, specifically about what you will eat or drink or about your body or what you will wear. Now, for a moment, let's remind ourselves of the types of people that Jesus would have been talking to his original audience. Most of the people listening on that hillside in Galilee They had very little beyond the basic necessities of life. And as an agrarian society, they relied heavily on the elements. And would there be enough rain for the crops? Would there be too much rain that would cause flooding? See, they had plenty to worry about regarding food and clothing and shelter, leading to their preoccupation with these things. Now, in our modern day, things are a little bit different for us. And while there are still those who sadly deal with food insecurity and uh, even a lack of clothing or appropriate shelter, many others in the modern West still find themselves preoccupied with food, drink, clothing, and shelter, not because of a lack, but because of the trappings often connected with excess. But no matter the reason for our preoccupation, to set one's heart upon material possessions or to worry about a lack of them is to live in a perpetual state of insecurity. And a perpetual state of insecurity is not the heart of God for us, which is in part why Jesus gives the prohibition to not worry. Now, to begin his reasoning behind the prohibition, Jesus now offers his first statement of reality, and this is in the form of a rhetorical question. He says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Now, if you allow yourself to slow down for a moment and to meditate on this question, the answer is obvious. Of course, life is more than food, and the body, of course, is more than clothes, But by our preoccupation with these things, you could assume that we really don't believe that. I mean, we often spend countless hours occupying our minds with desire for more. We don't just scroll by the ads on Instagram. No, 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 we fixate on them till we inevitably hit buy it now or we pick some type of payment plan that we wanna tie ourselves to. We trick ourselves into the lie that if I just had and insert whatever it is for you. If I just had this, if I just had that, my heart would finally experience happiness. I would finally feel a sense of peace. And to be honest with you, you may for a while. But eventually, worry never seems to depart from us for too long. So Jesus now goes into using a type of logical argument called an a fortiori argument. Here's what he says. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? The type of argument that he is using, basically what it does is it maintains that what is true in the lesser case will certainly be true in the greater case. So in this example, while God loves all of his creation, it is human beings that are made in his image and were given the original mandate to rule over creation. 
So his argument stands, if God cares for even the birds that he created, it is illogical to believe that he would not care even more so for the human beings that were created in his image. Now, it is important to note what Jesus prohibits here is worry, not responsibility. We must be responsible much like the birds are responsible. As one commentator would say, the birds do not simply wait around for God to drop food into their beak. No, they seek and they search and they build nests. And those who migrate always do so before winter's chill tends to set in. But through it all, they do not worry. So we too must control what we can control. To be responsible and to do as the scriptures say, to to work with our hands. We are to be diligent and to steward well our capacities, giftings, ingenuity, and intellect. To be wise to provide not only for ourselves, but to provide for those the Lord has entrusted into our care and even for those in the community who find themselves in need while all the while standing firm to not worry. Now Jesus now uses another statement of reality in the form of a second rhetorical question. Verse 27, can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Here Jesus makes the case of the absurdity of worry because it accomplishes nothing. To worry will not add to your life. In fact, research shows that the opposite is true. Worry is more likely to shorten your life than to prolong it. Chronic worrying and anxiety can significantly impair day-to-day functioning, sleep quality, work performance, and relationships. Long-term anxiety is linked to depression, immune system impairment, and conditions like heart disease, IBS, and migraines. See, worry takes rather than it gives and is, as one writer would put it, as absurd as paying interest on a debt we may never owe. So Jesus now goes back and he uses another one of those arguments, this time regarding the flowers of the field. He would say this, why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Again, the argument is from the lesser to the greater. If God, through his abundant care, clothes even the grass of the fields, then he will surely take care of you. For we are of much more value than the grass that is here today and is gone tomorrow. So do not worry, you of little faith. That line, you of little faith, to me, it's a very subtle but loving rebuke. Because the reality is this, the sooner sooner or later, what worry will do, it will become an enemy of our faith. And it shows the cracks in our trust of God and his character. So as verse 31 says, so do not worry. Saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. 
Jesus' use of the word pagan here, we need to make sure that this is very clear. Uh, he is using this to denote those who have yet to, to put their faith or are seeking after God. He is not using it in the often derogatory way that we use it nowadays. See, Jesus is saying that there will be those who will run after their insatiable appetites for food, drink, and clothing. For those whose treasure is on earth, not heaven, whose eyes are set on darkness and not on light, who choose to serve money rather than God, it is logical and should be expected that they will run after these things. As Philippians 3 verse 19 says, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But we who follow the way of Jesus, we must live lives differently from those people. Those who have not yet put their trust in the fatherly care of God and have no fundamental aim beyond the temporal and the material. So what we are to do is to accept the invitation of what Jesus offers in verse 33 when he says these words, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. To seek first his kingdom and his righteousness is to orient your entire being around God. It is to mature beyond a preoccupation with that which is temporal and material and instead to do as the Apostle Paul would say to the church in Colossae, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And this is the great conviction that has set in on my heart this past week. That to seek first his kingdom is more about increase than it is about position. Let me explain that. To seek first does not simply mean that your pursuit of God's kingdom is just one click above your own. I think oftentimes we're content with that. That as long as if someone were to hand us a piece of paper and said, write out your priorities, we would all go, well, obviously number one is God. And then it's, you pick and choose. What is it for you? And we somehow have become satisfied if, as long as God is just in position number one. But see, here's what I believe. Here's the conviction in my heart. As we mature in our faith, as we follow Jesus over time, I believe that there should be an ever-increasing disparity between the building of our personal kingdom and the building of his. That our affections for Jesus, the building of his kingdom, and the here and now reality of the rule and reign of God must be more to us, must be greater to us, and must be growing within us. The goal is not simply that God is first. The goal is that there begins to be a chasm, a, a large shift taking place as I follow and seek after his kingdom more and more. As Paul Miller would say, you can't add God's kingdom as an overlay to your own. See, our preoccupation with the things of the world, as the famous hymn would resound, must grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. So now we come to Jesus' concluding remarks. And he leaves us with one final prohibition and a final statement of reality. 
Verse 34, therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. It's funny because some of you as I'm reading it are giggling because it's, it is kind of funny. Actually, it's not funny. It actually makes me worry to be honest with you. <laughs> I mean, you might be even thinking right now, uh, is that last line supposed to help me? Was that supposed to make us feel better? Uh, Don't worry about tomorrow. It will surely have its problems, but you have enough trouble to worry about today. So just focus on the troubles of today. The ones tomorrow will be there tomorrow and we'll just keep going on. But you just told me not to worry. And now you're confirming that there will be more things to worry about. Uh, Can we just go back to talking about the birds and the flowers? That kind of inspired me and made me feel good inside. Tell me more about those. Or how about another one of those rhetorical questions that at least helped me to contemplate the futility of worry? But that's not what Jesus does. And it is here with this seemingly less than helpful statement that Jesus ends his teaching on worry. He's just done. And he moves on to the next subject. I think it's on judging others. Join us next week and we'll talk about that. (laughs) So now what? What are we left to do? Just try not to worry? To rely on the sheer inspiration of Jesus' teaching and then try our hardest to to white knuckle through each day's worries until Jesus returns or God calls us home? If that were the case, let's give it a try. Everyone, for the next 10 seconds, close your eyes and just don't worry about anything. See how long we last. See, and even right in that moment, someone in here was probably like, but what if I lose my job? (gasps) Or what if I get sick? Or what if the accident is worse next time? Or what if the cancer comes back? See, What I love about Jesus is that he does not leave us to inspiration and trying. Thank God. See, the good news is this. When it comes to worry, Jesus does not intend to leave us with only an inspiring teaching and then the reliance on our personal willpower. Jesus knows That within our own human striving, we will not be able to will ourselves to a worry-free life. Jesus knows that trying won't do it, that inspiration is limited, and that willpower can only take you so far. Which is why we must come to the point of realization that his prohibition to not worry has nothing to do with inspiring us to change and everything to do with his ultimate vision to see us transform into an entirely different type of person. His invitation is the same that it's been throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the same invitation that we read of his throughout the gospel, the same invitation that is worked out in the writings of the New Testament, that we, through the Holy Spirit's power, must become a new creation, a new type of person, a transformed self. But for us to experience transformation when we are being freed from worry, We have to give ourselves to a way of life that would require us not to try, but to train. Okay, but how? 
John Mark Comer, in his most recent book, he offers us this. Transformation is possible if we are willing to arrange our lives around the practices, rhythms, and truth that Jesus himself did, which will open our lives to God's power to change. I like how he puts it, that we must arrange our lives around the practices and the rhythms and the truth that Jesus himself did. And when we do that, power is released from the spirit that leads to our formation into Christ-likeness. The practices and the rhythms that he is referring to are often commonly known as the spiritual disciplines. A standard definition of the disciplines is the following. A discipline is any activity that I can do by direct effort that will eventually enable me to do what I currently cannot do by direct effort. Let me read that one more time. A discipline is any activity I can do by direct effort that will eventually enable me to do what I currently cannot do by direct effort. See, the invitation is not to try to change. The invitation is to train. Let me illustrate it this way. On Friday mornings, I teach an intro to guitar class at my kids' homeschool co-op. I have 16 students. And in that room, every single Friday for 55 minutes, I am doing my best to teach them how to play guitar. It is as wild and chaotic as you can imagine. And I've broken my class into four parts. We always start with a review. And so I learned from TA in another class last semester that the best way to get the students to participate is to throw candy at them. So I have a bag of candy with me and I just start asking them questions of things that we've talked about. So, uh, you know, for example, what are the, what are the, um, you know, the notes on the the musical scale and they'll, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And I throw candy. Yes, you're right. And then, you know, hey, someone, what is one of the scales that we're learning? The pentatonic. Can you play it for me? They play it for me. Here you go. Candy for you. And we just try to get them to, to engage that way. And then I move into a time where we don't just talk about review, but we have a time of warm up. So I tell them, listen, any scale we've done, any exercise we've done, the Bluey theme song, happy birthday, whatever you want to do, you just, for the next 10 minutes, just warm up. And so it's, it's chaotic. It sounds kind of terrible at this point, but we're working on it. And they just start practicing. Then there comes a, a point where we give them new content. Last week, I was trying to teach them how to tune their guitar to itself. It was so hard that I ended up going on Amazon that day buying 16 electric guitar tuners so that they can uh, have a better shot next Friday when we get together. And I also taught them a certain type of chord last week. And we had this moment at the end of class where I was playing this game with them of allowing them to write a song by them just throwing out random notes and then I would play it on the guitar. It was a lot of fun. Some of them, they were throwing out random notes and even in my mind, I'm like, this is no way this is gonna work and it sounded terrible, but we got to laugh about it. And then some would come up with these really unique chord progressions and as we're listening, we're like, that's actually kind of cool. We should write this down. Maybe we can make some money on it later. This is great. And then ultimately, it always lands with the time where I clearly communicate to them what they need to do to practice. Practice exercise one. If you want to stretch, go to exercise two. Practice the pentatonic. Then do the pentatonic blues. Work on these little songs that we have provided you. Work on this new core that I showed you. And try to spend 20, 30 minutes every single day practicing these things. Because here's what I know in my mind. 
If they do not practice, they will never become the type of person who can play guitar. They just won't be able to. I'm already seeing the, the, the divide beginning to take place in my class of those who are practicing and those who are not. And what I know is that I don't care how good of a teacher I am, no matter what happens in that 55-minute period, if they are not engaging in the type of life, creating the rhythms, having the practices, and doing those types of activities, they are never going to learn how to play guitar. Dallas Willard says it in this way. No one ever says if you want to be a great athlete, go vault 18 feet or run a mile under four minutes. Or if you want to be a great musician, play the Beethoven violin concerto. Instead, we advise the young artist or athlete to enter a certain kind of overall life. What's fascinating is that we understand that when it comes to playing an instrument. We even can understand it when it comes to playing a sport. And we understand it when it comes to wanting to have our bodies, you know, healthy and we, we work out because we know if we do these activities over time and I stop eating as much and I do some working out, that long term, I'm going to become a certain type of person. It makes sense in every aspect of the human condition. Why do we not think about it in regards to our spiritual life? No matter what happens in this room on a Sunday morning, if this is your time with Jesus, you are never going to become fully the person that he has called you to become. Because he never invited you to come to church. He invited you to become a disciple. Now, church is part of that. And there is something so beautiful that takes place when we gather. I think coming to church is a spiritual discipline. And something beautiful can be released in us when we attend these moments together but it's not enough. I want you to think about the spiritual disciplines in this way. They are a time-tested way of entering into a certain kind of life. The kind of life that frees us and opens us up to receive the necessary power from the Spirit of God to become the type of person, for example, who worries less and less. To become the type of person who out of their natural disposition just begins to exude love to those around them. To become the type of person who is experiencing peace and joy and hope. So what are the disciplines that you might be asking? Well, let's think about the passage we're in. So we're talking about these verses, do not worry. We set up earlier that Jesus talked about, you know, the treasures in heaven and the light and the darkness and, and also, you know, not serving God, or sorry, serving God, but not serving money. But what did Jesus talk about right before then? Pastor Taylor talked about this three weeks ago. Does anybody remember? Yeah, that was my fear. We need to do better about that. But here's what he talked about. Jesus said, when you give to the needy, when you fast, and when you pray. Does anybody else find it interesting that he first offers these practices, then he talks about treasures in heaven, and then he tells you not to worry? Almost as if, as you begin to give, and as you begin to fast, and as you begin to pray, you are becoming the type of person who will make the right decision to choose God and not money, and then ultimately you will begin to experience peace. See, through the Spirit's power, giving releases money's grasp on our soul. Fasting frees our heart from worldly desire and prayers lead us to abide in God's presence. 
Now, there are other disciplines. How about the discipline of solitude? How about the discipline of silence? Now, I get it. That one's really hard. I have three young kids. It has not been quiet in my house in six years. But in order to experience silence, I have to do what I did this morning. I got up at 5.30, I went into the playroom, I just laid on the ground, I listened to this podcast that I've been listening to that just leads you through a time of prayer, and then I just sat there in quiet. Truth be told, with my foam roller behind me, but that's a whole other, you know, conversation. Or how about just scripture reading? Just waking up, or before you go to bed, or at lunch, I don't care when you do it but just engaging in the word of God. Or how about this one? What about the practice of a Sabbath? In fact, I saw this image on Instagram a few weeks ago. I thought it was so funny. Uh, Having one lazy day per week can help reduce stress, high blood pressure, and improve mental health. And I thought, isn't that ironic? The self-help people are stealing our stuff. Because that, to me, sounds like a Sabbath. That sounds like the very thing that God wove into the very fabric of creation, that you are to have a day of rest. And it should not surprise us that science has figured out that when we have a day of rest, what happens? Things begin to decrease in our body. That is so key for you to realize because it sets up this next point beautifully. The end game is not to Sabbath or to pray or to read scripture. Those are a means to the ultimate end of becoming the type of person that God has called you to be. And it is so important for us to acknowledge and realize that because I promise you, and you do not have to raise your hand, but I guarantee it, the minute I started talking about spiritual disciplines and prayer and fasting and Sabbath, some in this room had a word pop up in their mind, legalism. But the problem is, it only becomes legalistic if I allow the disciplines to become my end. Does that make sense? And I'll be honest with you, when I grew up, I absolutely saw them as the end. I saw in my mind, in my paradigm, as long as I am reading scripture and praying and doing these good things, God would love me and he would be proud of me. And I had it all wrong. And it has been years of God breaking that from me. I do not pray to earn God's love. I pray because it helps to release the Spirit's power to help me to become the type of person that I ultimately want to be because I know what God called me to be was to be more like Jesus. And when I become more like Jesus, I'm going to live more the life that God has called me to live. That's why I pray. I don't read Scripture to be filled with spiritual pride to look down on others because they do not. I do so because it's helping to release the Spirit's power to lead me to becoming the man that I have always been called to be in Christ. That's the call. These activities and these disciplines are our way of offering to God space in our lives to allow Him through His Spirit's power to reshape us from the inside out. They are a means, not the end. But I do believe that God will use them to do things like help us to become the type of person who worries less and less over time. With that said, if you're able, would you please stand to your feet? We're gonna have a time of response. And what I just want to encourage you is that at any point in this 
time where we're gonna sing together. If you, uh, sometimes when we respond with our bodies, it just does something to us and for us. And so while we sing this song, if at any point you wanna come forward and just stand at the front, we've had people at multiple service, just come down, you don't have to make a thing of it. One of our team members might just come, put their hand on your shoulder and just begin to pray blessing over you. But let's have a time before we rush out of here and get back to our worries. <laughs> let's have a time and allow God to minister to our hearts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to partner with us in sharing Jesus and helping people experience life change, you can support our mission by clicking the link in the description. If this message has impacted you, please subscribe and share. To learn more, visit wearecalvary.com. We'll see you back next week.